You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. There are many gastrointestinal disorders that are commonly seen in individuals with diabetes. Joining us to discuss common gastrointestinal disorders and its relationship to diabetes is gastroenterologist and senior staff physician at Sharp Healthcare from San Diego, California, Dr. Jamie Wollison. Dr. Wollison, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you, Steve. What are some of the common GI disorders observed in people with diabetes? Steve, it's been known for a long time that, uh, that many, if not most, patients with diabetes tend to have gastrointestinal problems. In fact, it's estimated that up to 75% of people with diabetes have gastrointestinal problems. Most of these turn out to be nonspecific, irritable bowel-type problems, but probably a third of diabetics will have specific problems related to diabetes. The ones that we worry about the most are problems such as gastroparesis, autonomic neuropathy, fatty liver, which is a corollary of insulin resistance, which is, of course, underlies the type 2 diabetes, as well as celiac disease, which is linked with type 1 diabetes. Jamie, let's jump into the first most common disorder, which is gastroparesis. This is one of the conditions that I think most physicians have heard about and can really cause havoc with the patient's blood sugar as well as general lifestyle. Sure. Gastroparesis is, I think, has been in the limelight the most because it, it was seen uh, fairly common years ago when diabetes was very poorly controlled for many years and the manifestations of gastroparesis are so pronounced. People have early satiety, a lot of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. It really can be very debilitating. If you have gastroparesis and problems with motility and absorption of nutrients, it really messes up your blood sugar control. And that connection is usually not made. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. And when we do specialized testing for gastroparesis in diabetics, we find that probably up to 40% of long-standing diabetics will have abnormal gastric emptying tests, but most of the time it doesn't, those are, patients are not symptomatic. When the stomach emptying is severely delayed, as we talked about, there's nausea and vomiting. The symptoms can be somewhat nonspecific, and when you have a diabetic with recurrent vomiting, weight loss, bloating, they need a workup. And the first workup that we usually do is endoscopy to evaluate the anatomic situation going on in the stomach to be certain there's no pyloric stenosis or peptic ulcer disease, etc. And then if you really are concerned about gastric emptying abnormalities, we do a nuclear medicine gastric emptying study. I think most physicians are familiar with that test. It involves eating some solid food that has a radio label in it. And then we measure for up to four hours the amount of tracer that stays behind in the stomach. And we expect to see the stomach empty, about half of the stomach should empty within about 90 minutes. The upper standard barium study or upper GI series is notoriously inaccurate because liquids may empty pretty rapidly from the stomach 
even in the in the presence of gastroparesis. It's the solids that stay in for a long time. What we see on the blood sugar logbooks is that their blood sugars after eating are actually pretty darn good, and sometimes they get low after eating a fairly large meal. But then as the night goes on or the afternoon goes on, the blood sugar starts to creep up as that food is finally being kind of absorbed and pushed out of the stomach, and the blood sugars can get to three to 400 three to four hours after eating. That's kind of a classic blood sugar chart. Absolutely. And I think when you have patients who have the continuous glucose monitor on, it's interesting to look at those patterns and you can almost predict who has gastroparesis just based on those the continuous monitoring of the glucose. What can you treat these folks with? Well, that's that's the problem. We, we are limited in the types of therapies that we have for gastroparesis. The, the the classic medication is Reglan or metoclopramide. It works for some people, but it does tend to have side effects. Uh, it's really the mainstay of our treatments nowadays. Uh, we had cisapride a few years ago, which worked pretty well, but that's off the market now uh, because of cardiac toxicity. Uh, domperidone is a non-FDA-approved medicine that's available in Canada and in Mexico, you can order this online. It's a Reglan-like medication that doesn't have the central nervous system side effects. I think it's really a good medication. Let's, let's quickly make a comment on two other related GI disorders that are caused by neuropathy, GERD and constipation. When we see generalized neuropathy in diabetes, the autonomic nervous system, of course, can very readily be affected. That's the reason that gastroparesis develops for most people is a vagal autonomic neuropathy. With that neuropathy, you can have motility disorders in the esophagus. Delayed gastric emptying leads to gastroesophageal reflux. Neuropathy involving the colon can lead to constipation. And when it involves the small intestine, you can have a lack of absorption of fluid leading to diarrhea, the typical diabetic diarrhea, and also abdominal pain that's hard to uh, characterize. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend, Dr. Jamie Woolison, discussing diabetes and disorders of the gastrointestinal tract. Jamie, let's jump to celiac disease. The incidence of celiac is actually relatively low. It's less than 1% of the general population in the U.S., but amongst patients with type 1 diabetes, that prevalence goes up to perhaps as high as uh, 7.5%, maybe as low as 2.5%. We do know that HLA uh, haplotypes DQ2 and DQ8 are very closely associated both with celiac and with uh, type 1 diabetes. In fact, if those haplotypes are negative, then you can rule out celiac disease. But what the connection is exactly with the specific gene is not clear. Give us a picture of the classic symptoms so we can make a diagnosis early. I know I've missed several patients who have had it. The classic symptom would be malabsorption, diarrhea, weight loss, bloating, uh, foul-smelling stools, uh, oil in the stool. But the problem is so many people with celiac have nonspecific symptoms, and they sound just like irritable bowel syndrome. And so they, the diagnosis oftentimes is missed for prolonged periods of time. I recently diagnosed a woman who is in her early 80s who's probably had it for 30 years. What's the best test to order? The, the best test for a primary care physician is the tissue transglutaminase antibody. 
it's a, basically this, it's a very similar assay as the old endomesial antibody, but this has a sensitivity and specificity of greater than 90%. It's cheap, it's easy, it's a great screening test if you have any concern for celiac. Simple blood test, not very expensive. If you have family members who have celiac, your risk is much higher. On occasion, we will do the gene, the HLA genotyping, but we, we, that's pretty it's more expensive and we don't do it that commonly. So what's, what's the best clinical advice to treat these folks? It's still difficult though. You have to avoid wheat, rye, barley, and probably oats as well. And that's a very difficult diet. You really have to be strict about trying to avoid gluten in order to keep the condition under control. No other medical therapies, just gluten-free? Not yet. There are newer agents that are in clinical trials right now looking at ways to block the toxicity of gluten on the GI tract, but nothing is ready for prime time yet. Let's talk about fatty liver. We know that fatty liver is associated with type 2 diabetes, and we, all of us guys out in the trenches seeing patients, we get those elevated liver function tests in our patients with type 2. How do we know it's fatty liver, and how do we rule out other conditions? Fatty liver turns out to be the most common cause of abnormal liver tests, and probably 20 to 30 percent of our population has some degree of fatty liver, and that's all the overweight uh, population that we have. It's the, the insulin resistance. It's the metabolic syndrome. It's the, the, we see abnormal liver tests in fatty liver even before the glucose becomes abnormal. The diagnosis of fatty liver very frequently is a diagnosis of exclusion. You want to check for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, iron overload. You get an ultrasound. It shows an echo-dense liver, which is nonspecific. But once you've ruled out all the other causes of liver disease in the correct situation, we label that as fatty liver. You can do a liver biopsy, but in general, we don't biopsy people with fatty liver unless their liver enzyme studies are quite high, ALT in the 150 range or thereabouts. Now, in terms of therapy, I know as a diabetologist, an insulin sensitizer like uh, pioglitazone or rosiglitazone is kind of the drug of choice to reduce fatty liver. Is there anything else? You know, this is all in clinical research right now. We don't know the best approach to this, but the glitazone-type medicines are very promising, as is metformin. These tend to lower insulin levels a little bit, and I, I really think that the high insulin levels are what drive the fatty acid metabolism leading to the fatty liver. Weight loss is important. Lowering a cholesterol with a statin is probably not going to do much of anything. In the morbidly obese, gastric bypass surgery can lead to resolution of fatty liver. Most patients with fatty liver don't get into problems with it, but probably 5% of the time it can lead to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and subsequently go on to cirrhosis. And most of the cases of cryptogenic cirrhosis that we see in gastroenterology are actually due to burnt out fatty liver. Let's go to the last topic, bacterial overgrowth syndrome. What does that look like to us clinicians and what is it? Bacterial overgrowth has been recognized for a long time, but it's really been neglected until the recent years. The problem is it's very hard to diagnose. It's hard to get a sample of fluid from the small intestine to culture and do it accurately. Breath tests are somewhat cumbersome, but we know that people with diabetes who have slow transit through their gut, people who have high blood sugars on a regular basis may have overgrowth of bacteria in their small intestine. It can lead to a whole myriad of GI symptoms, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation. It's, we're learning a lot more about this 
and when people have symptoms that are unexplained, if there's any possible concern for bacterial overgrowth, we will try a non-absorbable antibiotic such as rifaximin, and it can have spectacular results in certain individuals. We also will frequently treat with probiotics, and that's all the rage now as well. Everybody hears about uh, the different probiotics that are available, and that may provide some benefit in replacing some of the bad bacteria in the gut with a more gut-friendly bacterial flora, such as the lactobacillus. I had a patient with all those symptoms plus floating stools. Does that go along with the syndrome? It can, because once you get bacterial overgrowth, you can get malabsorption and steatorrhea. And it sounds like better glucose control may help the situation based on what bacteria is like to live on. Absolutely. Across the board, the higher your blood sugars, the worse your GI symptoms are going to tend to be. Even when your blood sugars peak at 250, 350, 400 just for a few hours, it can have lasting impact on the motility of the intestine for the rest of the day. I would like to thank our guest, gastroenterologist and senior staff physician in San Diego, California, Dr. Jamie Willison. Dr. Willison, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. What are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.